And we are live from the Empire of Lies, an oasis, on a bastion of truth, and a free speech and diverse conversations in the vast and dangerous wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is a backstory. How you doing today, Rod? I'm doing well, Lee. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. So you've got a guest pack show today, don't you? Three, count them, three guests. One more than usual. First off, at, in the first hour, Jamal Thomas will be doing another report from Los Angeles, where he's at the American event, the event of the Americas, and he'll be giving us a report. Then, Mark Frost is a frosty Thursday here in the backstory. Then, in the second hour, the former guest co-host of this show, current co-host of Political Misfits on this very radio network, John Kiriakou is joining us. Did that cover it, Rod? Did I miss anyone? That covers it, Lee. Okay, so that covered it. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. But I would not call till next hour. Top of the hour next hour, because we have very little time on the backstory. We've got two guests. And Commence Central, do me a favor. When Jamal's available, just tell me, because I want to cut to him as soon as he's available. Okay? Yep. So as soon as he calls in, let us know. Now, I was thinking, Rod, one thing, it's tiring to prep for the show. People don't realize, and I realize I'm not being whiny uh, a little bit, but I was making a point. Do you know why prepping for the show is doubly hard? Because I need to be aware of the truth, but I also need to be aware of the narrative. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes 100% sense, Lee. Uh, I, I kind of do the same, and sometimes, you know, I know, uh, you know, since I don't host the show, but I give it a little time. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to come back to this story to see you know, what the narrative is, what the lie and what, you know, where, where we can find the truth. And I know you follow these stories as soon as they come out. So, you know, it, it's tiring going through hour by hour and uh, dismantling the lies and the narrative that might, that might come from a story. And it's especially true in the Russia-Ukraine war. And I'll talk about that in a second. But let me do something journalists don't do. Let me issue a correction. There's a guy who was outside Brett Kavanaugh's house, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, was trying to kill him. And the initial reports said that he had a knife. I met, read multiple reports. They didn't mention anything about a gun. Well, it turns out, you mentioned this yesterday. You were right. He had a Glock. He had a Glock 9mm. That's what you read, Rod? Yeah, that's what I had read, and you know, but I had also saw the knife report. So it was, it was like, you know, you hit me up and told me the news, and I said, okay, all right, you know, Lee's usually pretty good about this stuff. And as soon as I looked on search engines, they talked about a gun. So, but well, then I also and, saw, the, also saw the knife as well. So I was like, so what's, you know, what's the? What's and the and also say this is why I don't like breaking news. I did pretty good. I read multiple reports that said knife. Multiple reports. 
but they were early in the morning. So they were wrong. And I want to say that Glock is correct. He had a gun. And still, why haven't we found the guy who leaked the documents? Why is that investigation taking so long? Isn't there a limited number of people that can be? It's not like, right? I mean, only so many people had access to that document on Supreme Court computers. Why have not they nailed that that dude yet or dude yet? I believe it's a woman. Uh, I, I forgot exactly who uh, was releasing kind of deductive reasoning through the people who uh, have clerkships for the Supreme Court. And one of them was uh, her whole life was pretty much surrounded by abortion. Uh, that's what she studied in college. That's what she studied in graduate school, law school. So uh, I believe it's this woman. I, I don't know her name. So I believe it is a woman. And uh, I just think the media doesn't want to, you know, they agree with this person. So whether it's a man or a woman, so why would they want to, you know, it's like the Ukraine, you know, the, the Ukraine so-called whistleblower, you know what I'm saying? Now we're getting ready for a Thursday night premiere of the January 6th hearings. And on one hand, MSNBC's put the advanced word out that there's no great revelations. They're downplaying expectations. Have you seen that? Yeah, I did see that, Lee. Yeah, yeah. Adam Schiff came out, uh, and he, you know how he does. He comes out like, oh, we're going to have something real explosive, but, you know, don't get your hopes too high. Yeah, now Jared and Ivanka will be testifying tonight. And they've, but they know what they're going to say because it's not live. It's pre-taped. And they have a documentary filmmaker who's with the Proud Boys. But they obviously know what he's, and I realize the reason they indicted the Proud Boys is so they can say, this documentary filmmaker will be talking about the Proud Boys who've been indicted for sedition. Because I heard that on NPR today. They want to say, they'll be talking about the Proud Boys who've been indicted for sedition. Because it makes it sound more scary. But apparently, we'll see. We'll have we'll cover this tomorrow. We're talking I was talking to Rod earlier and saying we're gonna have clips, long some long clips. So we'll be covering this in depth tomorrow, what they're going over. Now, what I was saying about the Russia Ukraine war, first let me tell you the truth. Here's what's going on. Russia is winning. And in the area of Severodonetsk, which seems to be central Donetsk, that region, Russia has control of all the suburban areas. Now, that's not Russia saying that. It is, but it's also Ukraine admitting that Russia has control of all the suburban areas in Severodonetsk. Have you heard the same thing, Rod? Yeah, I've heard exactly the same thing. I've heard exactly the same thing. Uh, and like you said, Ukraine's reporting it itself. So it's kind of uh, over here in America for anybody who's, you know, I stand with Ukraine and, you know, Ukraine flag on their car and the social media virtual signaling. I, you know, I would guess they feel embarrassed, you know, because they thought Ukraine was going to win this somehow. And, and they're admitting, uh, Zelensky sort of admits that Ukraine has lost this thing. He's talking about the 
fighters fighting bravely and saying they're going to fight for every inch of land, which is suicide. But because they're also not wanted there. But Russia is winning militarily. That's the truth. And Ukraine's admitting it, and the people are admitting it in the West. But then I heard the leader of Poland is mad at France and Germany. Had you heard that, Rod? Well, I, what I've been hearing is that uh, Germany, what they've, what they've been pushing in Ukraine, have a, a lot of people upset. So I didn't hear that exact news, but I have been seeing throughout the weekend and days that uh, Ukraine is upset with Germany. So, so no, now here's the guy from Poland, the leader of Poland, has spoken out against France and Germany. And what he's mad is France and Germany had a phone call with Putin last week, right? Now, the purpose of having a phone call is they're trying to get him to negotiate with Ukraine to save as much of Ukraine as possible because Ukraine is losing militarily, period. They're losing. And the longer it takes, Russia said this, the longer it takes for Ukraine to negotiate, the less of Ukraine there will be to negotiate for. We talked to Scott Ritter about that early in the week. You heard that conversation, right, right, Rod? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And which makes sense, you know, as time goes on, you're going to be, you know, in a sense of a pie, you're getting less and less of the pie. Now, I heard on NPR, the leader of Poland is upset with France and Germany. And I'm going to tell you, given what you know to be true, what do you make of this? But what he said to them was, don't allow, would you allow Hitler to save face? Don't have a phone call with Putin to allow him to save face. So ponder the implications of that, Rod, and then we'll go to Jamal. Putin is winning. What does he have to save face for? You see what I'm saying? No, I see what you're saying, Lee, but this is like, it's like bizarro world. You know what I mean? Like, it's like the... the the Down syndrome Superman. It's just like, what, 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 I don't even know what you like. How do you even address that? Yes, and it's hard for me because I'm, I'm old and I stroke. So I'm having to deal with two separate realities. It's tiring. But that's the latest news. Let's go to a short break and then we'll come back to Jamal Thomas, who's in LA. And we'll talk about the event that Biden was at today. Power of Lies in the Capitol, Washington, D.C., when 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Joining us now from Fault Lines in the morning here on Radio Sputnik, Jamal Thomas from L.A. right now. Hey, Jamal, how you doing? What's going on, man? You doing okay? Yeah, I'm doing okay. I, I, I got, uh, I'll just mention, I forgot that you, when you were on the other day, you were on with Jason Goodman. And I didn't know Jason had met you, but so pretend you're meeting Jason for the first time, even though he's not here. He really enjoyed being on with you. So he says, hey, and he enjoyed your parents as we did you. Our, ourselves. So so there, Jamal, make, making up for my 
lack of politeness. How are you doing in L.A.? I, so far, so good. Things are getting a bit hectic. They changed the schedule, and so they're taking us to um, a preliminary session a little bit late. But I have a few minutes before they actually um, take us out. There seems to be a little bit of lag time in it. So we can talk until they um, take us on the bus or whatever else. Um, That's fine. If you need to leave, just let us know. We will be accommodating. So I understand Joe Biden was there. He was apparently was in town to do the Jimmy Kimmel show. And he combined that, right? Right? Because Kimmel tapes in Hollywood. So what happened with Joe Biden? Was the excitement palpable or the confusion? It was really interesting. Um, this conference seems to be um, rhetoric and uh, rhetoric hitting its head on reality. Like, meaning... You have the summit. You have all of these people who are supposed to come. America takes a strong position that we are not going to have certain countries, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. Okay, fair enough. You could do that. But then you have a problem. The moment that you do that, do you have enough power, soft power, in order to influence the other countries in order to get them on board? And the answer to that became no. So you have Mexico, El Salvador, Honduras, many of these countries decide we're not coming. Now, what does that mean and why? The context. Guatemala. Matters. Yeah, in Guatemala, that's the other one. The context matters. Many of those countries were, A, toppled by the United States at one point, and many of those governments fully understand that they could also be on the outs and be ostracized every bit as much as Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba, meaning they're not going to cut their own throats in that particular way when they themselves could be held um, to the same um, criteria. I mean, they're not going to do it. It doesn't make sense for them to do it. And there wasn't necessarily enough soft power from the standpoint of the U.S. to do it. So it's like it's basically in taking a position, a maximalist position on this front, you basically depict weakness. And it goes more to that, more to the point than that. The argument that, oh, well, these are democracies and we care about democracies. Okay, why is Haiti there? Why is Haiti invited? I mean, you had the president, Moise, who was basically assassinated with the new president being looked at it. Not to mention the government is radically corrupt with gangs and everything else. Um, what about Israel and Saudi Arabia? You are going on your knees begging Saudi Arabia for oil because of the nonsense that you basically created um, abroad. Well, what about them? They had a Khashoggi carved up with a bone saw. I mean, even if you're looking at Israel, who basically murdered a journalist and decided they're not going to do an investigation. I was looking at the um, details of what they basically wanted to accomplish for the forum. It was like five key points. And the points are somewhat farcical when you really think about it. Providing food security, okay, fair enough. Collaborating on climate, fair enough. Framework for economic cooperation, fair enough. Training healthcare workers, fair enough. Delivering commitments on migration. Now, think of a few of those. The economic partnership. We are in California. California has hundreds of thousands of homeless people. I can tell you myself, it is shocking. You walk out your room, there's a homeless person. You go around the block, there's a guy eating out of a trash can where you're just digging in a trash can and drinking. Hundreds of thousands. You get to the point where you have literal shanty towns in America, California, no less. And so when you're screaming about an economic partnership where you're talking about you're going to invest money, $50 billion, I'm sorry, uh, what, $20 billion or something like that, and you think to yourself, dude, you're in California with all of these people that are dirt, they're poor. And then you, it's a radical, like, misguided 
fiction of values or the very least of priorities that it's palpable. Like the, the entire conference on some level becomes that way. Food security. Okay, you provoked a war in Ukraine that you're basically preventing, that created a situation where all of this wheat and everything else couldn't go to the war, basically creating famines. You started the economic war. You provoked that war. And so now you're talking about pledging money that is not going to be enough after creating food insecurity around the globe. The framework economic security, I've reported to that one, um, Declaring commitment to migration, that one is interesting. So Biden, in his speech, said something to the effect of mutual commitment to safe migration through the region. And I said, okay, what does that mean? And then he put safe and orderly migration. And again, I wrote, what does that mean? But then he said, we will enforce our borders. So is it possible that what they're talking about as an economic um, or is this partnership in regards to migration, that that's going to be something similar in the way that Trump did, meaning we're trying to get these guys together in order to stop all these people from showing up to the U.S. Problem. Mexico, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala didn't show up. So how do you do that when some of the main countries that are basically would be required to assist you with that, Venezuela included, by the way, or Nicaragua included? Are there some of which you just didn't even invite? How do you do that? How do you do that? And to make this more special, this argument that oh, we don't want to deal with authoritarian governments—you knocked over one government after the next. I mean, when I was going through the list, 1964, Brazil; 1973, Chile; 1976, um, what is this? Argentina; 1971, Bolivia; uh, El uh, Guatemala; Nicaragua; Panama; Paraguay; 1963, Dominican Republic. You did this, knocking over governments and putting in dictators. Not to mention, you can even go to Honduras, where they basically, what, Orlando, they got rid of the quote-unquote dirtbag lefty, put it in Orlando, and he became a narco government, a narco state, where he's like, I'm going to get cocaine into the nose of every gringo. In which case, the U.S. is trying to extradite the guy who they put in office um, for, for prosecution. If you remember, Hillary Clinton was in office as Secretary of State, and they escorted the guy out in his pajamas. They said, oh, that's not a coup. Or what about Evo Morales? They're talking about security for the various countries in the region. Well, what about Evo? Evo Morales won that by 10 points. The OAS comes out and basically said it's fraudulent. It wasn't fraudulent. And a right-wing coup government gets in the power that basically kills and injures the indigenous population. What are they talking about? Like It's like the context and reality of events are belied by the things that they're basically saying. And in this case... The- but, Jermon, let me ask you a question. You know all this stuff, and, of course, you're right on this, but is there any sign that anybody else there in L.A. right now at this summit of the Americas knows this? Is Biden getting any questions about this? Is is there any hint of reality getting through? It's weird, because what I'm looking at, I was reading over... Um, other people's coverage of this. And mainstream media seem to hit upon, A, the weakness issue. They seem to hit upon the inability to basically bring these guys into line. They're questioning whether or not there's going to be any capability of getting anything done. But from the standpoint of the historical context, no. That doesn't come up. That doesn't come up. <laughs> that doesn't factor into it. Like the reasons why those countries won't show up. They only talk about that from the standpoint of not inviting Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba. They don't talk about it from the standpoint of the historical context that you've knocked over these governments and these guys are worried that you may either do it again or at the very least ostracize them in such a way where they can be on the outs of the U.S. just like Nicaragua, Venezuela, and things. Also, you know, the fact that we were begging Maduro for oil 
like the last month after trying to murder the guy, then it, some of the stuff is just a bit rich. That's all. It's a bit rich. Now, I heard that Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, was there uh, a couple of days ago. And his press conference, there was an interruption. There was some activism. Did you hear anything about that? I didn't see I didn't see it personally. The only one I saw was yesterday when Biden was giving his speech. People started screaming. One guy, some one woman stood up and started screaming at Biden. And, uh, you know, all of the press immediately stood up and focused directly on the person who was screaming at him. Um, but he was quickly removed, and Biden wasn't necessarily flat by it. Um, I've been covering the protests also, and I have um, sources into the protests themselves. And they were basically saying that when they got there, that there was somebody who flipped out that needed to be like pulled away and everything else from security. You must understand, security has the entire building surrounded. Like, fences are all the way around the building. And they are intense secret service police works. Police are very nice, by the way. And LA, the people are fantastic. The State Department people, they have been extraordinary, like in regards to helpfulness and everything else. This, the, it has been shambolic, to put it mildly. But the people here, very nice. They've been very helpful, even, you know, knowing that you're a radio spoonic, they don't treat you necessarily any different. They're very pleasant. Um, organization is an issue, though. Organization is a big issue here. And people are confused, and they've been confused the entire way through. Even now, there are people arguing with the State Department because they want to get into the event that I'm getting into, but they didn't have enough of the badges and stuff like that for the people to do it. And this has been something, this is part of it. Like, even, like, the precedent. We were supposed to go to press. You know, press gives you superpowers, right? Because you have your pamphlet. So when somebody says, you hold it up. Let me in, you know, let me in. I'm just, you know, I'm doing the news. Um, the cops didn't let us in. <laughs> the cops treated us like regular people. How dare you, sir? So there, the State Department person had come out, and there was a big argument back and forth over where we were supposed to go because it didn't seem like they understood what was going on. Um, all right, we are moving, so I have to leave. But um, look, I, we, uh, next week, why don't you hit me up, and we'll talk about it a little bit more. But we're heading out right now to the events. Jamal, enjoy the rest of your day. See if you can get to Roscoe's House of Chicken and Waffles in Hollywood for dinner. <laughs> no, I love Roscoe's. But it's, it's one of the places I recommend in L.A. Enjoy the rest of your day. Jamal Thomas, great appearance. Co-host of Fall Lines with Thomas and Chang. Chan, forgive me, in the morning, Sharon Splendick. Thanks, Jamal. Let's take a break. And then Mark Frost will be joining us on a frosty Thursday here on The Backstory. Backstory and great report, Jamal Thomas had to go because you know the schedule's changing and he's busy. But we'll get him on next week to talk about a wrap up to what he saw. Great appearance, Jamal Thomas. Joining us now, our friend, entrepreneur, Eagle Scout, former Marine, proud rock drummer, Mark Frost. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing pretty good. My internet just went out, and I'm shocked that the call's even working. So if the quality gets bad or we drop, that's the reason. Okay. Yeah, it's a miracle any of this stuff works. But, Mark, uh, the the headline today is that gas prices 
nationwide have hit $5 a gallon. AAA is saying it's inching up. I think it's four ninety eight or something with AAA. But this other service, Gas Buddy, is saying it's over $5 a gallon. So that is a big deal. And, and it's psychological because it's an even number. Do you anticipate gas is going to keep rising? Do you think it will hit? Well, name a number. What do you think it will hit? What do you think we'll see, Mark? It looks like we're going to see up to 8 to $10 a gallon. That's what it looks like to me. I don't see any evidence whatsoever in terms of the policies of this administration that they want to retard the price of rising gas. I see zero evidence for it. They don't seem concerned about it because it's very easy to fix. I mean, this is economics 101. You don't even you don't need a PhD in economics like me to come on on and and, and then talk about this. This is just basic supply and demand. And uh, so I would not be shocked if this time next year the retail price of gasoline averaged around eight to nine dollars. It would not shock me at all. Now, what impact will that have on the economy as a whole? I know people think about it in terms of how much money it takes to fill a gas tank, but what effect does it have on the economy, on trucking and things like that? Oh, it, uh, fossil fuels impact every aspect of our economy. Let's say you decided, let's say that you're so green, you decided you're never gonna burn a fossil fuel again in your life. Well, you're still going to use products made from fossil fuels because you can't get away from it. Plastics are made from fossil fuels. Most of the advances in medicine, uh, to some degree, involve a fossil fuel. It's uh, everything we use, we make. If you play guitar and you use and you use guitar strings, those require fossil fuels to make the solvents to strip the wires to the point where they can be coated. There's all sorts of things that. Uh, fossil fuels are used for doesn't just impact the price of the of gas that's a leading variable uh leading indicator that that almost everybody can understand because everybody buys it but if you're in the wholesale business and you need to buy raw petroleum to make whatever uh it is increasingly problematic because all you have to do is look at the futures markets what are investors betting with their own money with and either they're betting long or they're betting short. And, and it's pretty clear when you look at the futures market, people are betting that the price of gas must increase. And what that means is the price of gas must increase. Now, Mark, here's a weird question. But I think you'll understand it. If I ask who benefits from the rising gas prices, because obviously someone's benefiting or they wouldn't be keeping it going. So who benefits and who's, uh, people want to say, well, if you sell gas, do, do the gas stations actually benefit? Do they make more profit at higher prices? Who benefits from this, Mark? No, they really don't. Uh, and, and just for the listener's sake, I was an executive, uh, my first real executive job was at 7-Eleven Corporation. And so I understand the retail gas uh, business pretty well, just because I 
uh, had to analyze kind of what they were doing, all that sort of a thing, uh, just from the business model. But it's definitely something that is very problematic because it's not just about gasoline. If it costs three times as much to deliver a box of fish to a restaurant, then the price, then that increased price is going to migrate into the, into the supply chain. And when, when the final retail product is made, they have to try to pawn those extra costs on to the backs of consumers to the extent that they can. And the people who suffer the most are for non-luxury goods, goods that people have to buy almost regardless of the price. Uh, and gasoline is one of them. Uh, people can't just decide, oh, I'm not going to buy gasoline because the price is too high. Uh, in most areas of the United States, if, if, if you don't have a car, it's exceptionally difficult to get around and have a job in the real world, uh, especially if you get out of the big urban cities like San Francisco, New York, that sort of a thing. Like in Dallas, Texas, which you know, uh, you need a car. You really do. And uh, it's a tax on the poor, as far as I'm concerned. As to your question, well, not as far as I'm concerned, it just, it is. It's literally a tax on the poor. Uh, as far as your question, who benefits? Well, the people who benefit are, ironically, the foreign sources of oil we're buying from because we don't want to use our own oil. and the automobile makers who have a friend in the government, which is economic fascism, which is promoting their products, and mostly the, the, the ideological far left has come to realize a bit of economics themselves. They understand that we're never going to convert from fossil, from fossil fuels as long as the price of petroleum is relatively cheap. And in my view, they're purposely doing this. They want to drive up the price of gas so high, make it so painful that people will either stop driving or they'll use public transportation or they'll buy an electric car. And then you can go dig into the, into the economics of what does it actually mean to go electric with respect to cars? And it's not as green as people think it is. Matter of fact, in some cases, it's actually, it's on net, it actually increases uh, carbon emissions. And so that's the politics at play. It's a far left ideological strategy that I would have thought would not have been tolerated. And uh, imagine if Donald Trump would have said, you know what, we need, we use too much fossil fuel. And I'm going to purposely tax the poorest Americans. I'm going to tax a product that represents a giant percentage of the budget of low-income people. What would they have done to Trump, do you think? They would have crucified him, right? And... This, this petroleum problem that we're having, or more specifically, the price of gas, the price of petroleum, even inflation itself, this is self-imposed. Russia didn't do this to us. 
Ukraine didn't do this to us. China hasn't done this to us. This is a self-imposed injury. And it shocks me. It literally shocks me. Um, And it's a sad thing. And I think, you know how fads go politically? I think in just a few years, it's already kind of starting. I think a lot of people that were on all this bandwagon are going to be like, you know what? Full electric automobile transportation isn't feasible at this time. I'm starting to see what's going on. But but I blame the mainstream media. When I meet people, I go to a party or something, that's the one thing they want to ask me. Well, what about this? What about that? And I start explaining it to them. And they've never even been exposed to the idea that electric cars still require energy. There's, we could triple our wind farms in this country, and we still wouldn't have enough electricity to fuel electric cars. It's going to require some hard choices. So if you, if you want to have electric cars, it's impossible to do it with, with wind alone, with hydro alone. You're going to have to either burn fossil fuels or you're going to have to go nuclear. And the far left doesn't like nuclear either. So if, if what the mainstream media, I think, has, has done criminally wrong is a, a lot of folks that are on fixed income, lower income folks, I've been on record anytime I'm on any show on uh, Sputnik, I, I like to drive home the point that the inflation rate isn't 10%. If you make 40000 a year, if you're a, or even, not even that, if you make the median income in the United States, meaning half as many people in the country make more than you and half of the people make less than you, that income of about $60,000 still represents with the inflation rate, an effective inflation rate of about 20%. And all that means is, hey, I'm making the same money I always made, but I can only buy 80% of what I used to could buy. And that's inflation. And we did it to ourselves and we have nobody to blame except Americans because nobody did this to us. Nobody made us do it. Nobody forced us to do it. This is, this is our doing. Now, Mark, the other thing that's rising, and we hear, we hear talk about a food crisis, but it's mostly in other countries now. The food crisis, the grain not leaving Odessa, because of the mines that Ukraine has put there, really. That's really that's what's causing it. That's not a food crisis that's hit American consumers yet. Do you see the food crisis eventually hitting American consumers, Mark? Well, it already has hit American consumers because, I mean, just, just look at the baby formula, the baby formula debacle. Uh, again, we did that to ourselves. Uh, yes. What, what, what a lot of people don't understand is that when you have a commodity like wheat or corn or oil or whatever it is, it's a commodity. Whether you import Ukrainian wheat, whether you import American wheat, it doesn't matter. As the supply of something changes globally, that impacts the price of it everywhere. Why? It's called arbitrage. If I can buy oil at $30 a barrel in Indonesia and sell it in the United Kingdom 
at $100 a barrel. I'm not going to drill for it. I'm just going to go to Indonesia and buy oil at $30 a barrel and, and then transport it to the, to the United Kingdom and, and sell it for $100 a barrel. Uh, it's the fundamental concept of arbitrage. And what I can't stand about what this administration does is the gaslighting. I wish they would just come out and say, my fellow Americans, I've made a decision and it's going to require great suffering and I'm sorry. The next generation isn't going to have the same mobility that the last generation is, but it's what we need to do. It's blah, 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 blah. But they don't do that. They talk out of both corners of their mouth and they gaslight the American people. And that's what I find mostly offensive. It's not people. I, I knew the Biden administration was going to be left wing. It was the writing was on the wall. What I didn't anticipate was the level of gaslighting that was utterly ridiculous. No, that's a good way to put it. Now, the other crisis, we got food fuel, but also housing, in a sense, is a crisis. But I'm going to say something. This is probably going to piss some people off. The reason for a lot of the homelessness, I'm convinced, and feel free to push back. I know it won't work if you feel like it. The reason for a lot of the homelessness, particularly in California, is it's never been easier to be homeless. That's a reality. Have you ever been homeless, Mark? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Like, like I will think I it was a long time ago. I was a musician. Uh, I didn't really what didn't really bother me. And I did have a car with a little camper on it that I could live out on a little shitty love pickup. Uh, exactly right. Wanna, and, and, and that's right, that's exactly the kind of homelessness I'm talking about, which is a lot more of I was I lived in my car when I was 18 and I moved to Southern California. And that was before cell phones. And when you were doing as a musician, that was before cell phones, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Now, today, the first here's the reality. I had I could, our phone. <laughs> right. And let me say that Elon Musk's Starlink internet costs 600 bucks, gives you great internet. You just need access to outdoors or 5G phones. If I was homeless and living in a car outdoors, I could do this radio show from the car. I could get good, good enough internet. 5G is fast enough to power the, right, Mark? It's fast enough to do audio streaming or Starlink. And oh, yeah. I'll tell you what else. Camping gear, tents are better and cheaper and easier to assemble than ever. A lot of people in California have realized there's no reason to pay rent. The hardest part I found of being homeless is figuring out what the hell to do with yourself. But you quickly figure out, you because you can't go to the couch and take a nap, but you quickly realize you can go to a park and take a nap, for instance, or you can go to Starbucks to the South or the public, li they made public library. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Went to the Salvation Army to take showers and stuff. Right. And in California, the beaches have showers. They have showers on the beach. And so I lived on the Rincon, and I lived in Ventura at the beach. And I could take a shower first thing in the morning. All these, these public beaches have showers.
And so you can figure that out. And so a lot of homelessness, and people might not like it, is by choice. Do you agree that a lot of people are probably, what I'm saying is that once certain things, the price of living without rent becomes feasible. You see what I'm saying, Mark? Well, yeah, it's like Bob Dylan, you know, when you got nothing, you got nothing to lose, you know? Uh, certainly, uh, having been both a traveling homeless musician, homeless meaning I did not have an apartment, didn't have a friend's house I stayed at, didn't own a home, I lived out of a truck, because we didn't always have a gig, right? And so if if, if we had a gig right. in in Boise that week, great, because they would part of the deal is they always give you a hotel uh, and a meal and some free beer and stuff like that. Uh, but homelessness, the vast majority of it comes from drug abuse. I'm in even in my life where I was at my lowest was because of drug abuse. I had abused cocaine. And if it wasn't for friends helping me out, I, I would have been homeless somewhere. But I, I do like the economics of what I think you're saying. If you subsidize something, you get more of it. If you tax it, you get less of it. It's a fundamental rule of the universe. And in California, they've subsidized homelessness to such a degree that it's not a thing that's horrible anymore. It's just not. You can get it. And the, the other problem in, in L.A., I can tell you. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. That's fine. I was just going to say, you know, and especially in California, Southern California, where the weather is friendly. Uh, right. You know, it's, a, it, it's harder to be homeless in Minneapolis. And guess what? When you go do the numbers, there's less homeless people in Minneapolis than there are, say, Los Angeles. No, that's right. And if you have a car, you can move in. You can go south for the winter. And what's happening is in L.A., let's say rent is a fairly moderate twenty five hundred bucks a month at the apartment you want to move into that apartment. You have to come up with first month, last month and security. So if you move into a $2,500 apartment, it's about $7,500, $7,500 to move into a place. And even if you have the $2,500 a month, few people have the $7,500. So you start looking at what your options are. And getting a 5G cell phone is cheaper, you, you, you see. And I think that's part of what's happening. And the rent in California has gotten so insane. And then you add first month, last month security, and it brings it to another level. And I think people are just adapting to the new realities and the new technology that make living anywhere possible. Mark? Yeah. Well, well, what I think is happening is technology is changing the game. Uh, 
there's beautiful places to live that don't have a lot of people that before you had to make a trade-off between lifestyle and, and, uh, and, and let's say urban location. And, and unless you go to the total boondocks, that's just not true anymore. Uh, I live where I'm at right now. There's not, I mean, it's not the boondocks. It's, it's within a city limits, but it's not a massively populated place. And I can work and do remote work and make phone calls and do all that kind of stuff. And I don't have to be in California anymore. And that's arbitrage, too. Uh, we economists call it geographic arbitrage. If, if the taxes are too high in California, uh, people pack up and move and go somewhere else rationally. That's what I did. I left San Francisco when the, when the DiBartolo family sabotaged my... Uh, first real estate development I ever did. It was a little strip mall in San Francisco. And I got buried by that very wealthy family. And they did it through environmental regulation. Uh, I got buried so bad, I basically had to just give up. So, Now, Mark, do you think our politics has caught up with this reality? You're saying correctly, it is what I was getting at, the technology... It's changed so much that it's changed the homeless situation because the technology, I'll pull it like this, you can get a laptop, a great laptop for 1500 bucks now. And with that laptop, you could potentially work anywhere and make a good income and get paid by PayPal or whatever. Now, do you think our politics has been able to catch up to how fast, and, and do they have, any creative solutions? I, I think not. I think the politics is still like 1970. And the technology is 2022. What, what do you think, Mark? Well, politics always lag individual innovative effort. So always. Uh, you know, a marijuana used to be legal. Then Reefer Madness came out. Then the, then the DuPont family jumped on board and it was made illegal. Uh, you know, it's, it's a thing where I, where I, uh, to me, one has to follow the other. Now, now, Mark, when you look at the economy as it sits now in 2022, where do you think the opportunities are? Because a lot of, we, we talk about, all the skies falling disaster stuff. But as an economist and an entrepreneur, do you see any opportunities that exist right now? Yes. Uh, I assume you're talking about for regular people, right? Uh, sure. Uh, I might even end up doing this myself. I'm not ready to do it like right this second, but uh, I was just watching on YouTube. There's a woman from Poland who, like three years ago, had, I guess she just had an emotional midlife crisis. Let's call it that. I'm guessing she's about 35 or something. Uh, and I watched a couple of her videos because they were very interesting. And she just spent three years traveling the world in this car. And she's Turkey, uh, Pakistan, uh, Iraq. South America, 
Mexico. I think right this second she's in Texas. Well, anyway, I, I, being an economist, I wanted to kind of see, okay, who's following her? So I kind of went and did a quick sample of a lot of her videos, and I came to the conclusion she gets on average about 400,000 views per uh, per video. Some of them she gets two or three million, but on average, I'm going to say, let's just say three, four, five hundred thousand. Well, if you just do the math, she's making quite a bit of money. She's making more money than she actually made when she was employed at an office. And, you know, she's making a couple hundred grand a year doing nothing but traveling all over and, and chronicling it in a interesting way that viewers find worth their time. And I think, no, that's just a young woman traveling and sharing her experiences. But I know people that are very good coders, for instance, and they're homeless. They're technically homeless because they bought an RV and they just wanted to get away. And they have a little plot of land and they go to the plot of land now and then, and then they drive around the country, but they can do their work. You know, I could be, I could be in, uh, outside of Sturgis in some of those areas, which get, you know, spotty cell traffic even, and, uh, drive up to a little hill, you know, uh, put up my little antenna for my 5g and, and I can code and upload my code, test it, all that stuff. Uh, there's no need for the overhead of an office, in, and it's, that, that's going to be increasingly so. In fact, I think the office, with a few rare exceptions, within 20 years, will just be, will be gone. Now, Mark Frost, here's a business idea for you. This is free of charge. A series of videos called Drumming on Like Sturgis or Paris, or Poland, or whatever. You take a pair of drumsticks, and you find stuff you can hit, and you're a good drummer, so you could make it sound musical. So you find rocks in Sergius, or a junkyard in Poland, or whatever, and you film a little of that. You see what I'm saying? So you've got a musical motif, and people like watching musicians. So you travel around the world, pounding on things, playing drums on them, and then talking about the location. There you go, Mark. Congratulations. Enjoy. I like that. Well, you know, I probably should have uh, chronicled my near three-month trip from London to Singapore using only ground transportation. And speaking of drums and music, uh, Moscow is just like New York or any major city. You know, you got the good, the bad, the ugly, but there's all modern conveniences you'd ever want in Moscow. If you get outside of Moscow, especially as you go into East Russia, it's kind of like going to southwestern Oklahoma or something. You know what I mean? It's very rural. Yeah. Redneck, kind of the way Americans would call it. But I'll tell you why. And, you know, the the trains... It isn't like sometimes they'd just be inconveniently late. Sometimes they wouldn't run at all. You know, they'd break down or something. And the hospitality of people that, you know, one guy could tell I was there, this clueless looking, certainly I didn't look very Russian, you know, waiting at a, 
at waiting and waiting and waiting at a at a train station only to realize that it had been the it had been canceled. I just didn't read Russian and didn't understand. And so he had his uh daughter with him that spoke some uh English and he informed me of what's going on and he invited me to go to their house. Now you know how that's kind of scary at first, right? Total stranger, new country, wants you to come to their house out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, and this was, I believe, over around the area of Lake Baal, if I'm pronouncing that right. And uh, and it happened over and over and over again. And they were just as curious as about me as I was them. But the common denominator was everywhere I went, they played music. It was part of their culture. Everywhere I went, they had a hand drum at least. Would sit around and you know drink and uh, and play music and talk to each other through translators and things like that. And you know most people spoke a little broken English a little bit, and I had picked up a little bit of Russian. But there was enough people that spoke enough English uh, that that could translate it, and that happened over and over and over again. And it wasn't just Russia; it was it was Mongolia. It was uh, 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 where Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam. It was I, I found that true almost everywhere I went until I got back to Singapore, which is like the United States. And then it's like, okay, welcome, but stay out of my house. <laughs> and you may have hit on a name right there, Mark. Drinking and drumming with Mark Frost. Where you're going around drumming around the world. A <laughs> little bit of drinking. And a little bit of playing drums, a little paradil. Mark Frost, fantastic parents. Mark, always good talking to you. Okay, take care of yourself, and we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, brother? That's Mark Frost, everyone. Fantastic parents by Mark. When we come back, next hour, John Kiriakou. And now's the time you might want to call in. 202-521-1320 on the backstory. And we are live from the Empire of Lies, a bastion of free speech and more interesting discussions here on Radio Sputnik, bringing you the truth behind the headlines. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. And two great conversations with two great guests the last hour, Jamal Thomas from LA and Mark Frost, economist, broad rock drummer, Eagle Scout, John Kiriakou, is our guest on the backstory. Now, would you watch a YouTube show with Mark Frost drinking people's vodka and playing drums in the wilds of Russia? Would you Would you watch that YouTube show? Yeah, I would watch it, uh, Lee. Um, if you remember our our guest Juan Linez from Honduras, I found him through a uh, another gentleman. He's probably around my age, probably early thirties. And then travels the world. He goes to part, you know, he goes to Lib Libya, Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan, places people say you shouldn't go. 
And, you know, that's where I found him through that channel. So, yeah, I, I watch stuff like that. It's very interesting, especially since, you know, uh, for two years, we were already at least a year and some change. We were locked down and flying all over the world wasn't very possible. Right. And the technology is amazing now. Uh, cameras are better than ever and cheaper than ever. And so are computers and editing software and everything else. So I'll I'll talk about something personal but we'll let people call in 202-521-1320. Uh, I am back to, uh, you know, I as an adult, and uh, you know, at 56, I've got a lot of adult behind me. So uh, for decades, I've been sleeping on a mattress on the floor because I chose to, because I was used to it and I liked it. So my wife and I, when we had a place in Alexandria, Virginia, we had a mattress on the floor. Then I've been going through a divorce. And so I moved to South Dakota a couple of years ago. And when I moved up here, I decided, you know, you go through a divorce, you reconsider a lot of things. I said, what am I doing? I'm 56 years old. I sleep on the floor. I can't do this anymore. I don't, don't want to. Let me act like an adult. So I got a big bed, a big, almost a poster bed. It's very big. It's a queen size bed, but it's got a big headboard and everything. And it's installed here in my bedroom. And I said, how adult am I? Look at me. I'm an adult. I have a bed. And I realized I don't like it. So over a couple of years, I've come to realize I don't like it. And I miss my mattress on the floor. So I mail ordered another floor mattress and I got it back in. And I, I guess I'm not an adult because I like sleeping on the floor. So now I've got a mattress on the floor and that's where I'm sleeping again. Does that make me a weirdo, not an adult in your opinion, Rod? Because by the way, I don't care. If you say yes, I'll just say okay. But what do you <laughs> not, no, not, not at all, Lee. You know, uh, people have a uh, special. You know, you know, people have special quirks. You know, some people might find weird, but it, that's what's comfortable for you. And uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but don't people in Japan wasn't that a custom? Like they sleep on the floor. That's what I bought. They say it's a Japanese floor mattress, and I guess that's sort of the right. I'll, I'll tell you what else, and because I know you're in a relationship. Do you think that there's something weird about not sleeping with the person that you're with romantically? Because my girlfriend Danny lives with me. But most of the time, it's not. I love her. And I love snuggling her and other stuff. So I like spending time with her. But I don't particularly like sleeping with anybody. I decide that I, I prefer sleeping alone. And I've heard a lot of people do that. I've heard like a third of married people don't sleep in the same bed as, and it has nothing to do with love. Again, I love my girlfriend and I love being with her physically. But when it comes down to it, do you find that odd, Rod? Again, Lee, no. Uh, sometimes here at the house, uh, I'll sleep on the couch just because, like, if it's late or whatever, and I don't, you know, whatever 
situation is I'll just sleep on the couch and, you know, so it's, it's, it's once in a while, but, you know, also I like to sleep next to my lady, you know what I mean? And uh, get some things done. Yeah. Uh, so, no, you know, I don't find that stuff, you know, to each his own, you know, whatever, whatever gets you through your, through your peacefulness. You know what I'm saying? If you find peace sleeping alone and sleeping on the floor, you know, it's very Japanese, very Zen of you, you know, it, it is what it is. Well, I was, you talking about sleeping on the couch. I was doing that. But the problem I have with sleeping on the couch is I feel like I'm going to fall off because it's kind of narrow. Do you know what I mean? So I like something wider. The good thing about sleeping on the floor is if I fall, there's nothing to fall off. I can't fall off because I'm already on the floor. So anyway, I just want people to think about this stuff because I think a lot of people, you know, feel hesitant to do it, but they don't understand it's not that weird. And there's nothing connecting love and sleeping, actually sleeping with the other person. If you're never, if you don't want to snuggle the person, break up. You know what I'm saying? Like, if if you're never intimate with the other person, you might as well sleep with the couch. But let's go to calls. 202-521. It's a weird, quirky thing I thought I'd mention. 202-521-1320. Tarif, what is on your mind? I have four comments. Well, first, I'd like to, first I'd like to say freezer and science. My first comment is this. Right now, with the um, the people that want to take back the country using the law and whatnot, like I said before, need to start leaking information. Why is it so important to do it now? If you look, if you look at boxing, when, you, when a boxer dominates a fight, he takes control of the fight. You don't let the fight come to him; he brings the fight to them, right? To the bo- other boxer, right? Rob knows this. What I'm glad Larry Johnson is going to come out with the information dealing with um, uh, Chalupa, right? Because that's now taking a fight to them. We need other people to go along with Larry Johnson, and I hopefully that that information he's coming out with is good. So we need to start taking the righteous fight, the legal fight, no violence at all, but the legal fight to the deep state. Okay, my second comment: the ruble is at 58. The um they have the U.S. is facing is facing Shortages of critical elements, chemical elements, such as like antimonium and um, titanium, tungsten, cobalt, and lithium. China and Russia got a whole bunch of supply of that, especially China control, I think, anywhere from 80 to 90% of the minerals, you know, what you, what you need for like making, you know, ammunition and um, rocket motors and car engines and stuff like that. And my, my last comment is dealing with Elon Musk. Elon Musk finally got his wishes from Twitter. Twitter is hanging over data, a whole bunch of data, because uh, uh, what Elon Musk is going to find out how much of Twitter is bots, you know. So it's 500 million tweets <laughs> per day. So uh, he must, he might go have a uh, team that's going to scan through it to see how, how much the percentage is fake and how much is real. And I'm pretty sure the price is going to drop down now since he got his wish yesterday, which is a good thing. I'm, sh- I'm sure he's going to report that info, too. He'll talk about it, which is the other thing I think is significant. I'm keen to find that out. Thanks for the culture of Greg College Israel. 202-521-1320. Colleen, what's on your mind? Hi there. Thanks for having me on. I've got 
comments on three different topics. I'm going to talk quick and you can cut me off. Number one, I'm with Therese Free Assange. Number two, as far as the homelessness in California, I'm a public health nurse for the homeless program in the Central Coast. And the entire theme of the the policy of housing first model is such a disaster and they're doubling down on it. And I cannot believe California voters are going along with all of this, regardless of the disaster that it's become. So we're housing. Now, what is what what is the housing first thing? You mentioned that. That sounds like your official program. What is that? That means the very first priority before dealing with anything else is just getting them into housing. So we've got complete drug addicts coming off of the street directly into housing without being mandated to have treatment, mental health care, or any of it. So we've got these new low-income housing units being built with tons of apartment buildings and come to find out, oh, there's human trafficking going on. Oh, drug deals. Oh, women are being tied up and raped by multiple people. Like the most horrendous crimes are happening in these places. And it's not fair to the homeless folks who don't have drug issues that were just down on their luck and they're being housed with the very same people doing those things, which are the majority. So it's a failure. Housing first model is a failure, but California is going to continue to do it. And the voters are allowing it to happen. Do you agree with what I'm saying? A lot of people have figured out rent is so high and the weather in California, in Southern California, is so nice. Cool nights, warm days, but cool nights that the weather makes it easier to be homeless and live in your car in California. Are you finding that, Colleen? I hear you. I, that's exactly correct. A lot of them don't want to be within four walls. Those are the folks, though, that need assistance in a different way. They shouldn't be pushed into housing where they're like, okay, I'll take a place. And then they they don't know how to handle it. They have no life skills. They, they're not used to being in within a structure. And it's multi-generational. I mean, I'm, I've been doing this a very long time. I'm an oldie here. I'm seeing now third-generation homeless and families. And California just encourages it. Um, I also, before you hang up, I just wanted to say, too, that, Lee, you and Danny, if you ever wanted to come out and do a little investigative work on that, I've got an extra bedroom, and I've got a queen, very upscale mattress on the floor. So you guys are welcome, you and Danny. And... Um, third of all, I want to know why it's not in the news that Alexandra Chalupa was flying in people from Ukraine. I've missed some of your show, and I want to know why, with this thing going on tonight, is this documented anywhere? Can we get it out more? What do we? Larry Johnson is going to be releasing that pretty soon. I, I've not seen it out yet, but Larry Johnson should be releasing it pretty soon. But when he releases it, it will be ignored, and is ignored because. It contradicts about four different narratives. I'll be talking about it. Larry will be talking about it. Jim Hoft at Gateway Pundit might be talking about it because Larry sometimes write for Jim. And Jim is very good about covering his kind of stuff. But still, this will be ignored. And Fox News has completely been ignoring Chilopa's story. And so I would expect more. But I don't have anything to document yet. So I was just looking for that. Yeah. I need some. Well, 
Yeah, I look for it soon. Uh, keep listening here, and I'll, I'll, but it'll be out. I would keep watching Gateway Funded. It wouldn't surprise me if Larry publishes a Gateway Funded. Also, Larry's own website, because Larry's got the info. But great question. Thanks for the call, Colleen, and thanks for the invite. I'm sure Jenny want to out there, but at five bucks a gallon from South Dakota to California, it would cost us, let me calculate this, $14,000 in gas. So we're putting that slightly in the back burner. And divorce hearings coming up. By the way, you know I found a good woman when she takes care of you when you're sick, supports you in your business, and helps you comply with subpoenas in your divorce case. So I got to keep her with Danny. But 202-521-1320. Aaron, what is on your mind, sir? Well, I'm going to talk about uh, two things briefly. Uh, I, for years, I had a futon mattress that I slept on the floor, just the way you prefer to. And it's the best sleep I ever had. It, it was firm. It was dense. My back was always in really good shape. And there's that weird psychological thing about rolling out of bed, you know, but yes, that for a long, a long, long time. And it was great. I I do it now. I'm kind of close to that now. It's just a mattress on a a frame that I built, you know, but it's good. Well, anyway, let me mention the psychological factor, Aaron. I, I, I described it accurately. When I was moving out here, I decided what kind of idiot am I who sleeps on the floor? At then age 54, I said, I'm going to be an adult. And that was my mistake. My mistake was wanting to conform to a societal standard. The idea is adults in Western culture sleep in beds, up raised beds, right? And when, when I realized, when I got over that, I said, screw it. I just want to get a good night's sleep. And I realized I was sleeping on the floor anyway, but I was doing it uncomfortably. And then I said, let me get a mattress so I can be comfortable. And now I've got a mattress. So really my broad point is don't be constricted by societal norms that may or may not fit you. If you like sleeping in a bed, great, go for it. But you know what? If you like sleeping in a hammock or on the floor or on the couch, Whatever you like doing, if that works for you, it works for you. And don't be constricted by what society says is normal. Does that make sense, Aaron? It makes complete sense. Uh, you know, when people ask me, so so where did you grow up? I go, well, I never did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Being a grown-up is really highly overrated, and it does it just doesn't sync with kind of the way I live, you know? But the point I was going to make on on the homeless thing, all right, so I live in Northern California on the East Slope, so I'm way out where there's cattle and cowboys, but it's a ski resort. It's a very well-known ski resort, and I'm I'm in a little suburb south of there. And we have a a, uh, transitional population that comes in for the ski season. And there's always a, a housing shortage, affordable housing for these people because it's a ski resort, you know. And a lot of these people, they sleep in their vehicles. One of our best friends has has set up his van 
to where he can go anywhere in the country. And just like you were talking about, he's completely jacked into the system. His van will keep him warm if it's cold somewhere. And and he can do anything he wants to do from that van. And it's, it's really a nice setup. He had a VW van, and then he upgraded to one of the taller ones, you know. But, but yeah. No, those vans can be like mini RVs, right? Yeah. And if you if you live a hybrid lifestyle, by which I mean, if you don't try to stay in your car all day, if you say, let me put a folding chair outside and sit out in the outdoors a little bit, and you can put a tarp or something out there. Does that make sense, Aaron? Absolutely. Most of the people that come up here, myself included, we're, we're, we're more comfortable outdoors. Most of these people go backcountry for days and weeks at a time. Um, and, and the way I'm set up to live, I'm kind of one step just ahead of being homeless. I, I, I own a 60-foot uh, mobile. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a trailer, but I've turn, turned it into a home. It's been here since 1960-something, and I've restored it. I own it outright. And, and you know, if, if something goes wrong, I can pay a trucker to put this thing on a 60-footer and take it somewhere else. So my home will always be with me. But, but to the point, I'm set up. I've, I've got a wood burner. I've got water on the property. We've, we've got a well on the property. And uh, I'm completely extracted from the system. And I have never been more comfortable. Right now, I'm I'm turning my place into a homestead. I'm growing food. I'm building greenhouses, and you know, I'm I'm just staying one step ahead of the game because I think we all know where this is going, right? And and this this idea of homelessness, it's it's you've got your your victim homeless, which okay, so that's subsidized and that's a voter base, and they kind of pander to that. But, you know, I had a friend that lived out in, in uh, Santa Barbara, and those were some of the, the happiest, well-taken-care-of, healthiest homeless people I've ever seen. And they just had it down. It's like you say, they were living on the beach, they got a shower, you know, and it's nice most of the time. So it's this, this is one of those things where people take a second look and, and you remove the stigma from being called homeless, and you just look at it as as an alternative lifestyle, opposed to what being saddled to a, a million dollar mortgage and and the rest of your life you're a slave to, uh, you know, the bank. So, <laughs> no, no, I'm glad you're talking about this because that's the broad concept that I'm talking about, and and from from me saying the random thing, seemingly random, about sleeping on the floor. That, too, is a mental construct, and so is living in an RV. A lot of people think if you were a real person, you'd never live in a trailer. But the fact is, depending on what you do, you can live a perfectly good life in a smaller space, in a trailer, or in a van on the beach. And you could never afford to do that in real life. If you wanted to rent a house in Santa Barbara on the beach, but back when I was 18, I lived between Ventura and Santa Barbara on the Rincon. And I wasn't the only person. There were a lot of people living there. And what's happened is a lot of people don't like to acknowledge that some people have figured out 
that's an alternate way to live that can be very enjoyable for people. And it's, I call it being homeless, but the reason I wasn't surprised Mark has experience with it is he's a creative person who's a musician. And he said his drug problem at the time exacerbated things. But on the other hand, that was part of his lifestyle at the time. And he was choosing, and this is what people don't like. He he thought it was more fun to put the money up his nose than an apartment. And at a certain point in your life, I can't exactly argue with that. I can, I can say, I don't think it's healthy or whatever. But ultimately, at the end of the day, he decided he was happier on drugs and living in a van than living in a house all day and not on drugs. And I think a lot of people make that decision. Now, some people take it too far. But my point is, when you have people who made that decision, I don't know how the government can, quote unquote, fix that. Aside from saying, we're going to arrest you for doing that. And to me, Mark wasn't hurting anybody. So does that make sense, Aaron? It's about the idea of people making an alternative lifestyle choice. And they, I, I kind of think they should be allowed to do that as long as they're not hurting anybody else. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, again, I agree. I mean, I, uh, I graduated high school in 1969. And, of course, that was at the height of the, the, the hippie kind of renaissance that we were kind of experiencing. And there were a lot of people moving to these alternative ideas of how and where to live. And it kind of broke down that whole construct of, no, no, you, you need a mortgage and two cars and a picket fence, which, you know, that, then you're in deep trouble for the rest of your life. So, so you know, if, if a guy, and look, I, all through my 30s, I was a traveling construction guy, and we had a lot of fun. When I was working out in Las Vegas, I, you know, we'd go to the nightclubs at night, and I'd just take my sunglasses because I knew I was going straight to work in the morning. You know, so I, I went down that road, too, and I didn't hurt anybody. I just had a lot of fun and wasted a lot of money, <laughs> you know, and, and now I'm, you know, I'm I'm older and I'm making choices. Just like I told you before, I'm a coder. I, I write code and I'm an artist. I, I, it's a side by side development thing. So I work out of my house and my house is my trailer that I own. And it's the lifestyle that I've chosen. And, and just like him, you know, I don't, I don't have any kind of a drug dependency at all, but you know, I've chosen how I live. I don't need anybody coming in to tell me, uh, you know, what I need to be doing, what I need not to be doing, what, which of my rights you decide, uh, I'm entitled to, you know, and, and, and where, where do you break that chain of custody that they want to start taking control of every aspect of what you do? One of the beauty things I have here, I don't have any smart meters. I don't, I don't carry a flip phone. I've got a burner. I ride a motorcycle, so I, I carry the burner. If I end up in the ditch, I can call somebody. That's all I want from my phone, you know? And, and that's how I prefer my lifestyle. I don't care what people think of me, right? You know, and, and you're right. Around the, the, the 60s, forgive me, Aaron, but uh, you're right. People like Kerouac and Ken Casey and the Beats, Cassidy, they talked about the constraining 
fact of living in a house and having a job you don't like and going through that and the pointlessness of it. And there used to be a romantic American ideal. And the hippies, a lot of them, you see this in the film, he's a writer. It's about choosing your own path. And that largely seems to have gone. But great call, Aaron. Thanks so much for the call. We, we've got to get your short break because our guest is the former co-host of his show, the great John Kiriakou. And I'm going to warn John, we're going to start with talking about your favorite person, Erdogan. And I'm trying to figure out what to call the country now, Turkey or something else, and explain right after this break on the backstory. Back in the back, Troy, and on 105.5 FM, AM 1390 in Washington, D.C. Our guest now, the co-host of Political Misfits, heard every day from noon to two, right here on Radio Sputnik, John Kiriakou. Hey, John, how you doing, buddy? Hey, Lee, doing well, thanks. How are you doing? Good. So I wanted to warn you about Aragon so you could, because <laughs> I know you don't like the man, do you? No, I do not. So I didn't want to spring it on you. If I, I was trying to give you enough time to grab a kitten or whatever you need to do to mellow yourself out a little bit. I'll tell you, I've been trying to talk a little bit on my own show about this guy this week. It, he's nothing but trouble. Well, he's in the news, and he's certainly – he's hard to figure. I'll put it like that. Now, have you figured out the new name of Turkey? Yeah, I think so. It's I mean, it's supposed to be – Turkey with a with a soft e at the end. It's funny because in Greek it's Turkia, but the Greeks don't even like saying that. They call it Mikriasia, Asia Minor. Now, see, John, and I don't mean this in a dirty way. Although some people are going to titter, you're a linguist, right? You yeah, know yes. multiple languages, and right. uh, some some would say a cunning linguist, but avoid the giggling. <laughs> It's immature, <laughs> but you're linguist. So say the name again. Pronounce it. Yes, the in the, the Turk the Turkish way is Turkiye, and the Greek way Turkia. If people haven't heard this, Erdogan saying it's not called Turkey anymore. His country Correct. is no longer called Turkey. Don't call it Turkey anymore. He's saying now say tortilla. Is that what you said? Right. Yes. Exactly. And, you know, they actually got the United Nations this past week to recognize the country as Turkia instead of as Turkey. And so they're they're changing the signs at the U.N. and and the nameplates and all that stuff. It's all silly. Now, this name change, I think I surmise that is actually fairly significant. I think that the move to Tortilla or whatever is a sign that Erdogan, who has one foot in the East and one foot in the West, that's why it's complex. Do you think that's fair to say? I think it's a sign that he is rejecting the West. Yeah, I, I think that's a part of it. And I think this is a sop to the nationalists, too. 
because um you know this isn't this isn't an an issue it's not like there's this great national debate over there about what to call the country this is something that he just came up with to make the nationalists happy and, and it's made them very happy now part of so tortilla or whatever is in nato that's a nato nation right yes yes correct as such he can, if they're trying to bring a new country in, if he's opposed to that country coming in, they're not going to get in, right? Correct. Um, NATO has every NATO country has veto authority. So for for a country to join NATO, all existing NATO countries have to agree. That's why North Macedonia took 30 years to get in because the Greeks rejected them over a couple of different provisions in their in their constitution and the use of the name Macedonia. Well, with Turkey, it's a little bit more brutalist. The, the, Turks, the Turks don't have any beef with the Finns. It's with the Swedes that they have a problem because so many Turkish uh, dissidents and Kurdish dissidents have emigrated to Sweden. Erdogan wants them all to be returned so that they can be prosecuted. Well, so many years have passed that a lot of these people have become Swedish citizens, uh, you know, productive Swedish citizens. And there's no possible way that Sweden is going to send them back to Turkey to face, you know, life sentences in prison for political uh, crimes. And so Erdogan is just going to keep rejecting uh, Sweden every time it comes up for a vote. And because of the current, you know, international uh, military situation, Sweden and Finland come as a pair. And so he'll just reject them both. Now, and the West does not seem to be taking him seriously. He has said, he, he's been pretty clear, actually. I will not approve Sweden as long as the YPG people are there. That's right. Right? That's right. That's what he's saying. And, and But my, my guess, though, is yes. if, the, if the U.S. weakens and decides to sell Turkey F-35s, he can be convinced to change his mind. Right. But they seem to be taking Erdogan seriously on that either. Right. I, I think what I'm seeing so far is the U.S. and the West are basically hoping this whole thing will blow over. And I think Erdogan is enough of a power player where he's not going to blow over on. He's not just going to yeah. fold and eventually go, okay, let's weed in. What do you think, John? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I, I don't think we're going to see Sweden as a member of NATO at any point in the near future. This is this is far more complicated than the than the media uh, lead us to believe. You know, about uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, we decided to not sell F-35s to Turkey. And it was because of what Turkey was doing in in northern Syria. And so not only did we not send them the F-35s, but there was a group of Turkish pilots here in the United States to undergo training in the F-35, and we sent them all back to Turkey. So to make matters worse for the Turks, we sold the Greeks F-35s. So they have them, and the Turks don't, and Erdogan just decided, okay, when it's, uh, when it's time – not time, but when he has the opportunity to screw the Americans on something, he'll he'll you know take that opportunity. Well, the opportunity came with Sweden and Finland applying to NATO. 
And then at the same time, and I'm glad you brought up Turkey because I think this is important and nobody's really paying attention to it right now. Two weeks ago, a nationalist Turkish journalist made a, a very provocative comment on, on the Turkish version of 60 Minutes in which he said that he believed the Turkish people would support a Turkish military invasion of the Greek islands in the Aegean. And the Greeks responded by saying, okay, come on now, let's not go down that road again, because this happens every five, 10 years. Well, then the Turkish, um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said that he believed the Treaty of Lausanne should be renegotiated. The Treaty of Lausanne was signed by both countries in 1920, and it gave almost every Aegean island to Greece. There are two small islands off the coast of Turkey that remained Turkish. Everything else is Greek. And the Greeks put their navy on alert. And then yesterday, Erdogan said that the Aegean islands are legitimately Turkish and they should all be returned to Turkey. Well, that's you're talking about maybe a world war if that were to happen. And we've never had a, a NATO country invade another NATO country. We've had Turkey invade Cyprus. Cyprus is now an EU country, but it was never a member of NATO. And there's no provision in the NATO treaty uh, to throw out a member of NATO. So no matter what Turkey does, NATO is stuck with them. And also, let, let me say this, and then we got, got a couple of clips I want to get to about unrelated stuff. But even though Russia doesn't want Sweden to join NATO, and Erdogan is stopping that, it is too simplistic to simply say Turkey's an ally of Russia's, oh, I yeah, think. Yeah. I, yeah. That's not good because a lot of Turkey's issues or Georgia or whatever are with Syria. And ally Russia is an ally of Syria's. And right. Turkey is not. So do you think Correct. it's too simplistic to simply say, that's why I say complex, even on that issue, to say he's, I don't think he's an avowed enemy of Russia. Correct. I think it's a mixed bag. What do you think, John? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. You know, during the, the Cold War, Romania was a member of the Warsaw Pact and was an ally of the Soviet Union. But the United States had very warm relations with uh, with Romania. So it's the same kind of a situation where Turkey is a member of NATO. Turkey is technically an ally of the United States, but it has very good and productive relations with Russia. They certainly disagree on Syria, but not to the point where they can't work together. Uh, that's what I compare it to. They, they've got a good working relationship. And that's why in the in the earliest days of uh, of the intervention into Ukraine, if you recall, there were very preliminary peace talks. Those peace talks took place in Istanbul and they were proposed by the Turks. I, I gave an interview last night to RT um, in Moscow and um, and they asked me if I thought that there were any uh, chances, any hopes for, for peace talks. And I said, no, not in the in the near term. But if there are going to be peace talks, the, the announcement is going to come from the Turks. I think that's where they'll be hosted. Yeah. And that makes some sense to me. And I knew I know, you know, quite a bit about uh, the situation in Turkey 
and it's a complex situation. That's why I'm bringing up with you, John. So thanks for talking about that. And I think one safe bet is we'll be hearing more about Erdogan. So people should get educated. Do you agree yeah. with me oh, that yeah. people should should keep up on this? I, I do. You know, th the man's been around in, in a position of authority, either prime minister or president, for more than 20 years now. Uh, he's at least as powerful as he has ever been in the past. Uh, immediately after the, the coup attempt back in 2016, he arrested or exiled anybody who could possibly pose a threat to him. Um, he's, uh, he's a force to be reckoned with, whether it's you know over Ukraine or it's over Syria or it's over the Aegean Islands. Um, we're going to have to take this guy seriously. Yeah, and 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 soon because we are coming, I think, to an end phase in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, uh, some sort of resolve. I think, uh, I think in the next right. few months. Yeah, I yeah. think you're right. It's not Just, in anybody's interest for this thing to drag on forever. And at this point, Russia is military dominant, and so dominant that I think they've won in terms of meeting their initial military objectives. And so I think Turkey will be a factor in what happens going forward. I so, think so too. Yep. Now, whereas our president does foreign policy on Jimmy Kimmel. So let's, let's get this clip ready. I want you, this is about the politics of the country, not about Russia, Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Listen to this clip of Joe Biden talking to Jimmy Kimmel last night. What do you think of this politically? What message is he sending? Let's hit it, Joe, Joe Biden on Jimmy Kimmel. You often get asked, look, the Republicans don't play it square. Why do you play it square? Yeah. Well, well, guess what? If we do the same thing they do, our democracy will literally be in jeopardy. Well, I mean, yeah. not a joke. And I, I understand that argument, but also it's like you're playing Monopoly with somebody who, you know, won't pass go and won't follow any of the rules. And how do you ever make any progress if they're not following the rules? Well, you got to send them to jail, uh, you know. Yeah. Now, I, I know not a lot of Republicans watch Jimmy Kimmel, but I'm listening to the audience applause. Not only what he said. But the audience applause. And to me, that's just he's speaking a foreign language. And exclusively we're talking about the the Republicans not playing by the rules. And any Republican I know would immediately bring up the Biden laptop story being buried by the media. Mm -hmm. And they don't see their Democrats exactly playing by the rules. What do you make of what does that tell you about the politics? of the country and where Joe Biden is aiming. You know, it actually tells me a lot. Um, this is certainly not the first time that a president has gone on one of the late night talk shows. Usually when that happens, it's from a position of desperation. Uh, you know, Joe Biden uh, is doing it right now. Barack Obama did it. Bill Clinton did it. And they would always do it when they were having problems on Capitol Hill, there was some sort of legislation that they needed to get passed uh, that they were having trouble getting uh, and, or or their popularity was so low they needed a national pick me up. You know, I remember commentators saying that Bill Clinton needed to prove that he had a sense of humor. 
that was that was why he went on these late night talk shows. Well, look at Joe Biden's poll numbers. No matter who's taking the poll, these are Jimmy Carter level numbers. In some polls, they're lower than Jimmy Carter's numbers were when he lost to Ronald Reagan in 1980. And so out of a sense of desperation, I think Joe Biden is out there because he doesn't know what else to do to try to get his numbers back up again. And then, you know, to blame, well, Mark, let, let me continue that thought, if you don't mind, just for one second. Yeah. To blame the Republicans and to, and to use a throwaway line like they don't play by the rules, that doesn't even mean anything. Like, what are you talking about? What rules, what rules are there that the Republican Party is violating? That was just a cheap throwaway applause line. And, you know, if, if I were able to advise Joe Biden, I would tell him to get serious Get his own family in order because his son and daughter, two crackheads, I'm sorry to say, are dragging him down uh, and focus on policy, not on going on Jimmy Kimmel to try to get a couple of cheap laughs. And, and John, we had Mark Akorian from the Center for Immigration Studies on yesterday, and he talked about that some of the Americas that Jamal's out and in L.A. Yeah. And. When 10,000 people are at the border and the people are largely from Honduras and they're in Mexico and at the summit of the Americas, because the U.S. banned Cuba and Venezuela, right? And who else did they yep. ban? Nicaragua? Nicaragua. Mexico. And Mexico's And boycott. Honduras. Right. And, and Honduras and Guatemala. Mark's not a fan of Cuba, let's say, but he thought it was an example of pure ineptitude. He said that if you're going to do something like this, you you run it by Cuba or Mexico. You say to Mexico, we're thinking of non inviting Cuba and Venezuela. And if Mexico says we're not going to show up then, then you go, well, maybe not. Maybe we will. Do you agree that what's going on is less ideology than pure ineptitude, John? Oh, yeah. I think it's ineptitude. I don't think it is ideological because, remember, it was it was the Obama-Biden administration that reopened relations with Cuba. You would think that Joe Biden would be doing everything that he could to to improve relations with Cuba that had been damaged during the Trump administration. And, and he's done literally nothing to improve those relations with Cuba. You know, if you're going to be an international leader on foreign policy, then be an international leader. You can't just decide that you're only going to invite the people who you like, the people who like you. And, you know, one of the things that, that Jamal talked about on, on our show today, too, is a lot of the other countries that are participating in the summit are not participating at the chief of state uh, level. So, as protests for excluding the Cubans, the Venezuelans, the Nicaraguans, and de facto the Mexicans, they didn't send their presidents or prime ministers to participate. They've sent lower level officials. So, you know, I think that, I think really this summit in Los Angeles, I think it's a failure. And it's a failure just because uh, the State Department and the White House blew it. But I made a suggestion to Jamal yesterday. And your brother lives in L.A. and my brother lives in L.A. Yep. And I've lived there before. What I suggested Jamal do, because it's near downtown, is go to Koreatown. 
because I said LA's got some of the best Korean food oh, in the world. Yeah. Oh, you know the Am last I right, time I John? went to. Oh yeah, the last time I went to dinner uh, at Koreatown, I, I met up with a buddy of mine from college, and uh, he asked me if if I minded if he brought a date. And I said, no, no, not at all. And he brought uh, that woman that you like with the long blonde hair, the conservative author. What's her name? Um, the one that Trump hated and she hated him. I, I don't know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, the famous Mark Loker knows. Um, the, she's a famous author and she pumps out books all the time. They're always like angry, mean-spirited books. Anyway. Is she, is she a leftist? No, she's a rightist, a hard rightist. It's famous, Katie Pebbles, famous with, with with the long blonde hair. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I you Ann just Coulter. made me. Ann Coulter, thank you. See, so brings Ann Coulter really? to the dinner, really? and I'll tell you, she was absolutely lovely, and she was very soft spoken. That angry, mean, hate filled thing—that's all an act. I was shocked, shocked well, by. Andrew it. was friends with Ann, Ann Coulter, and ah. she follows me on Twitter. And that's what I've heard. And I don't know if you know this, but Ann Coulter's a deadhead too. No, I did not know that. I did not but, know that. We we went to this place in Koreatown, Lee, and we sat there for three hours. You know, the place where every table is its own grill. I didn't even want to leave. The food yes, was so yeah. good. Yes. And so so I just want people to know that I did not steer Jamal wrong. Because oh, no, no, I said that was get good down advice. to Koreatown. Yeah. And, and go any place. But let's play the next clip. Now, Rod, I got a question for you. He set up this clip because I couldn't tell where this was from. I listened to it before. What is this from, Jamal? I mean, Rod, forgive me. Yeah, it's uh, Senator Tester being questioned about the Democrats' rhetoric on, you know, the Supreme Court's uh, Justin Kavanaugh being threatened. This one's from CNN. Okay, right, right. This is John Tester, a Democrat, right? Right, a Democrat. That's what you mean. Yeah, correct. Okay, let's play the clip. Your own party be better when it comes to their rhetoric. I ask you that. Yes, the Senate unanimously passed a bill to protect justices and their families. But House Democrats have not moved forward on that. And you've heard the comments from your own Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Should members of your party be more forceful? Should they be better with their rhetoric here? Well, well, absolutely. I mean, you can say that on every issue that comes down the pipe that, that we can do better in, in, in getting the message out that uh, the American people need to hear. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, and I, I don't understand why the House hasn't taken the bill up on, on Supreme Court justice security. Uh, yeah. Now, John, how shocked were you? Were you at all shocked by the guy who was outside Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's house and wanted to kill him. Yeah. Given the I, way things have been. Go go ahead, John. Take it. Uh, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I've been fascinated with this story, uh, Lee. This kid uh, came from Simi Valley, uh, California, drove all the way across the country with a with a Glock and uh, and a loaded magazine. He had he had zip ties. He had pepper spray. He had a knife, a hammer, a screwdriver. And as he's wandering around the neighborhood, he's he's a block or two away from from Brett Kavanaugh's house. He calls the National Suicide Hotline and says that he's uh, thinking of killing himself and that uh, before he does, he's going to kill Brett Kavanaugh and that he's in Kavanaugh's neighborhood. 
So the National Suicide Hotline operator called uh, the Montgomery County, Maryland police. And that's how they were able to get him. And of course, as soon as they got him, he, he immediately confessed to what he was going to do. And when the police officer asked him if he understood his actions, if he understood what it was that he was saying, and if he was thinking clearly, he said, I understand what I'm saying, but I'm, I don't think that I'm thinking very clearly. This kid is clearly mentally ill. He probably would have done it had he not you know, interrupted himself by calling the uh, – or at least tried it – by calling the National uh, Suicide Prevention Hotline. Um, he's been charged in Montgomery County. He was in, he was in circuit court in, in Rockville, Maryland today, and he was charged uh, with uh, attempted murder. My guess is that charge is going to be dismissed and uh, something lesser will be, will be charged, like menacing or aggravated menacing. But this kid clearly needs mental health assistance. Now, with that said, there is literally no no reason whatsoever that Nancy Pelosi uh, shouldn't have brought this uh, security bill up for a vote. No reason. There's no explanation that is viable. Now, and it's weird parallelism related to somebody who admitted something that, in retrospect, maybe he shouldn't have. Aiden Aslan is a British citizen. And he volunteered to be a fighter for Ukraine. Yep. Yep. And he surrendered Mariupol. Well, this morning he was found guilty because he pled guilty. Yes, he, he pled guilty. That he, he admitted that he was fighting for Ukraine. And right. let me say, he said he regrets it. And I personally, for what it's worth, believe he's sincere. Yeah, I've heard his I YouTube videos. I think, but he was sentenced to death in the Dennis People's Republic. And I don't have it. I think he fought as a mercenary and they made it very clear. Do you think the British government, by encouraging mercenaries to fight for Ukraine, holds any culpability here? Oh, sure. Sure they do. Uh, this was another topic on this RT interview last night. They asked me if I thought that the court in Donetsk would uh, would sentence him to death. And I said, I, I hope not. I said, I don't think so, because he hasn't been charged with with war crimes or crimes against humanity. He's been charged with being an illegal foreign fighter. And, uh, you know, while that is certainly a crime, I personally didn't believe that it was a crime that necessitated death. And I and they said, well, you know, there is, of course, a chance that he will be sentenced to death. And I said, yes. And, and I hope that if that happens, uh, they're able to negotiate it away somehow, you know, uh, con- convert it to life, send him to the UK. And it's not just to him. It's it's a second Brit and a Moroccan as well. But, you know, I, I don't want to sound harshly, but, you know, I'm going to shake this guy by his lapels and say, what what the heck were you thinking? What did you think was going to happen? You glory hounds who run off to different war zones around the world. Because you think you're going to come home with cool stories for your kids or your grandchildren, and you're going to come home as some kind of heroes that you couldn't be in your own country because you're losers and bums. What did you think was going to happen? And now he's like, oh, somebody please help me. I was sentenced to death. Okay, well, whose fault is that? And I think, obviously, 
that's the kind of thing they want to scourge. But he is a month to appeal. And the other thing that could happen, and I, I want to make sure I get this right, but I'm letting you understand that Russia has no death penalty. Correct. Do, do, you, do you know if that's true? Yeah, uh, they, they had a death penalty and, you know, they, they would execute like serial killers, for example. But it's it's my understanding right. that they haven't carried out the death penalty in quite some time. And so the DPR could re- reverse this. And also Britain could negotiate him back. And this isn't over. And I think we could hear more about it. Do you I think suspect right. that, John? Yeah. yeah you know, you this think- reminds me. This reminds me of a conversation I had with Chris Hedges recently. He he was kidnapped in Iraq in 1991, and the Pope called Tariq Aziz, and Gorbachev called Saddam Hussein, and Bush called some Iranian cleric, and they finally let him out. And so I think the same kind of thing is going to happen here. Yeah, John, great talking to you, buddy. Thanks for having me, Lee. Take care of yourself. You too, buddy. So John Kariaku, thanks so much. Jamal Thomas, thanks so much. And Mark Frost, thanks so much. We'll be back tomorrow on The Backstory. Backstory.